most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, April 13th, 2022, the 448th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Now, we're going to have some updates on yesterday's show. But first, let's talk about Joe Biden's speech from yesterday. He traveled to Iowa to mutter and babble senselessly about infrastructure and ethanol and how inflation is not his fault. It's Vladimir Putin's fault. In fact, what we're experiencing right now isn't even inflation. It's a Putin price hike. Vladimir Putin is in control of our markets, and he just decided to mark everything up. In fact, he even reduced the value of our currency, which is amazing because we were told that all of these economic sanctions against the Russian people, an actual attack against the citizens of Russia using economic warfare. Well, that was going to destroy their currency, the Russian ruble, except that currency is actually stronger now than when the invasion began. And the dollar is so much weaker. You get it? It's a Putin price hike. If Putin had simply done what he was told, this wouldn't have been happening. Well, it wouldn't have been happening in quite this way because the inflation was already happening and the gas price hike was already happening. In fact, Vladimir Putin hasn't done this at all. But that's not what the media says. And a new government forecast predicts gas prices this summer will be the highest since 2014. In Iowa, President Biden saying he's boosting the sale and production of ethanol blended gasoline as a way to alleviate pain at the pump and again blaming Vladimir Putin's Ukraine invasion. I'm doing everything within my power by executive orders to bring down the price and address the Putin price hike. Now, first off, why is she saying the prices will be the highest since 2014? What she should be saying is that gas prices will be even higher than they were a couple of weeks ago. But you got to be sure to frame it the right way for everybody. Now, what I really find interesting about that clip is the tiny soundbite they took from Joe Biden. This is MSNBC, by the way. Uh, Kristen Welker, the woman who ran the third presidential debate back in 2020. So she 
gives the framing and gives the premise of what Biden's speech is going to be about. Oh, it's Vladimir Putin's fault for the price hike. And Joe Biden is going to reduce the cost of gasoline at the pump by encouraging an ethanol blend in Iowa. And he's not just there shilling. He's actually going to do something, which is why they played the clip of him saying that he's doing everything he can do by executive order to lower the price of gasoline. Even though every single indication about the Joe Biden agenda and the things the fake administration have done show that they actually like high gas prices over and over again. They say, yeah, we're sorry about those high gas prices, but what you can do is switch to an electric car and then you get to save $80 a month on gas. Joe Biden said that himself like a week or two ago. But aside from how silly all of this is, what really caught my ear is that what MSNBC did was play three or four or five seconds of Joe Biden's speech where he's speaking semi-coherently, even though the rest of his speech was not like that at all. In fact, within the first minute of the speech, a bird shit right on Joe Biden's lapel of his suit. And he spoke with bird shit on him for over 20 minutes. And most of it went like this. Here's why. First, it supports supports farmers and the farm economy. You know, everybody thinks Delaware is a big industrial state and banking state and DuPont. We have a $4 billion industry. It's called agriculture in Delaware. And it's mostly, we have more chickens in Delaware, broiler chickens than you have in the entire Midwest, I think. But all kidding aside, it is a big industry in Delaware. The reason I find this interesting is because I try to imagine and try to get a realistic impression of what people on the left the child brains who would still vote for Joe Biden. I like knowing what it is they're seeing. And I try to imagine what it would be like if your total exposure to Joe Biden was through those little clips where he sounds competent and coherent. And he's talking about something that they actually think is good, like ethanol. Who cares about ethanol? Ethanol use is not fixing the problem of gas prices, and it's not going to make anything greener. It's actually a bit depressing that he's even trying this. If he's trying it, that means people are going to listen to it and think it's true. But imagine that's all you got. You just saw these little clips on MSNBC, and you think that dude can speak in complete sentences and that he's representing his own ideas. And that there's anything coherent about that agenda without understanding the World Economic Forum agenda, the global communist agenda at all. Imagine having none of that as a backdrop and trying to make sense of what's happening in the fake administration based on those little clips. And that's when I feel sad for my fellow humans who just happen to have child-sized, undeveloped brains. They are being fed a completely false reality all the time. 
in the real world, Joe Biden can't speak in coherent sentences, does not run his administration, did not win, is not helping, is only making things worse and is lying all the while. But in their world, Joe Biden from his basement won an election securing 81 million real legal American votes. He is implementing an agenda that will lead us into the future, into a technological future where things just continually get better. He's looking out for everyone. He's solving racism. He's implementing a kinder, gentler immigration policy. He is going toe to toe on the world stage with Vladimir Putin and winning with the help of a comedic actor in Ukraine and not the help of Nazis. And he is doing everything he can but for Putin's price hike. That is, from top to bottom, an entirely false picture of reality that has nothing whatsoever to support it. They simply remember each part, every little bit, every single slogan, and then they repeat them on call because they know them all. And they know where to place them. Just don't question any of the slogans and they'll be able to get through a conversation in some small way better than even Joe Biden himself can. And each time the truth of any of these issues emerges, they deny it. They go back to the slogans. They find out new slogans. They do fact checks and debunkings so they get some new slogans in that will defeat all the counterpoints of the other side. And they continue on believing the same things they already believed. At some point, one of these truths is going to affect their actual lives. And that's the point at which you hope they will wake up and stop doing things like defending Nazis and pedophiles, for instance. And when it finally does affect them, it is going to hit them the hardest because they're not prepared for it at all. They're not prepared for it in a pragmatic sense, like they're not the doing things that are going to prepare themselves for the future that is certainly coming. And they're not going to be prepared mentally or emotionally because they lack the knowledge about any relevant subject to be able to understand these things when it actually does happen. It honestly is sad what the media is doing to our fellow citizens and very often our friends and loved ones. It's sad. That's why I do this whole thing and why I talk about these issues this way. I want these people to overcome their addiction to the central narrative. I want these people to leave the party of false decorum and make themselves redeemable communists so that they don't have to endure the hardships to the degree they're going to have to endure them. They don't listen to us because they're the very smart, very serious, very informed people who are not racist, not sexist, not homophobic, and they're not crazy theocrats or anything. They have no beliefs at all, except that they are definitely right because experts on their side tell them so, and they got to go with what they know which is that people like them are always right. Now, last week, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas announced that his new plan to get 
the Democrats to stop pursuing their insane open borders agenda is charter 900 buses that would take illegal migrants from the border and send them all to Washington, D.C., where presumably they would be the illegitimate administration's problem and Congress's problem. It would be a visual cue right in their faces that they have to act and do something. Now, that's a very funny idea, and the idea is obviously primarily for optics. And to the extent that it's hilarious, fine, but it's not effective. It's not a real plan. And there's very little chance that it's going to influence the agenda pursued by the fake administration or any of the people sitting illegitimately in the House or the Senate. Because on that side of things, the optics are already set. The media has already protected that narrative. If you are still on that side of things, you believe that the issue over immigration is about racism and not about the fact that we are operating a slave trade on the southern border that we pretend is just economic migration, that all of these people are just coming to America by choice to have a better life. They're going to think that Greg Abbott busing these illegal immigrants around the country is somehow cruel that he's taking away their opportunity to make the decision about where they want to go. And of course, they have no idea that the current fake administration's actual agenda is exactly the same. They're busing and flying illegal immigrants all around the country and settling them in different American towns and cities. Are we supposed to imagine that sending them to Washington, D.C. first is going to somehow disrupt that plan. They don't have enough Soros and other NGOs to put themselves back on track. 900 buses by 60 people is 54,000 people. That's how many get across the border illegally in three days. And that's only the apprehensions. It doesn't even talk about the gotaways. So as funny as the optics are, and maybe somehow they're actually effective in some way, I doubt it, but we'll see. It's not really going to make any practical difference. And the great likelihood is that the fake administration and all of the people sitting illegitimately in the House and the Senate are just going to ignore it completely. Now, the reason I bring that up is because Greg Abbott is also doing something else about the immigration issue. And this is being pretty broadly reported today. This is the Associated Press. Trucker blockade snarls U.S.-Mexico border over Texas order. One of the busiest trade ports on the U.S.-Mexico border remained effectively closed Wednesday as frustration and traffic snarls mounted over new orders by Texas Governor Greg Abbott requiring extra inspections of commercial trucks as part of the Republican sprawling border security operation. Since Monday, Mexican truckers have blocked the far Reynosa International Bridge in protest after Abbott last week directed state troopers to stop and inspect trucks coming into Texas. Unusually long backups, some lasting 12 hours or longer, have stacked up elsewhere along Texas's roughly 1,200-mile border. 
Not even a week into the inspections, the Mexican government said that Abbott's order was causing serious damage to trade and that cross-border traffic had plummeted to a third of normal levels. On Wednesday, White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki called Abbott's order unnecessary and redundant. So I guess she's implying that all of the inspections down there are very thorough. And of course she is because she would never admit that there was an actual immigration problem at the border. It's just that so many people want to come here. They're not actually just getting shipped here by the cartels in a massive human trafficking operation in order to destabilize American society. The fake administration just totally has it under control. The gridlock is the fallout of an initiative that Abbott says is needed to curb human trafficking and the flow of drugs. But critics question how the inspections are meeting that objective, while business owners and experts complain of financial losses and warn U.S. grocery shoppers could notice shortages as soon as this week. Frustration is also spreading within members of Abbott's own party. Texas Agricultural Commissioner Sid Miller, a Republican, called the inspections a catastrophic policy that is forcing some trucks to reroute hundreds of miles to Arizona. I do describe it as a crisis because this is not the normal way of doing business, said Hidalgo County Judge Richard Cortez, whose county includes the bridge in FAR. And this is P-H-A-R-R. You're talking about billions of dollars. When you stop that process, I mean, there are many, 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 many people that are affected. Now, I don't know why the Associated Press wanted to ask a judge about the transportation of goods across borders. But hey, what do I know? I'm not a journalist. The shutdowns and slowdowns have set off some of the widest backlash to date of Abbott's multi-billion dollar border operation, which the two term governor has made the cornerstone of his administration. Texas already has thousands of state troopers and National Guard members on the border and has converted prisons into jails for migrants arrested on state trespassing charges. Abbott warned last week that inspections would dramatically slow border traffic, but he hasn't addressed the backups or port shutdowns since then. His office didn't reply to a message seeking comment left on Tuesday, but the governor planned a press conference for Wednesday afternoon in Laredo. The disruptions at some of the world's busiest international trade ports could pose economic and political threats to Abbott, who is seeking a third term in November. Democrat Beto O'Rourke, the former presidential candidate who is running against Abbott for governor, said during a stop in FAR on Tuesday that the inspections were doing nothing to halt the flow of migrants and were worsening the supply chain issues. Okay, so the idea that trucks being inspected could slow down illegal immigration or drug trafficking would make sense if some of these trucks were carrying illegal immigrants or drugs. So the question becomes whether or not these trucks are carrying illegal immigrants or drugs. And it turns out, as you might imagine, that some of them are. And then you have the fact that Democrats are attacking this plan, which means that it's disrupting some part of their agenda, most likely, or they think they can score political points. Now, if they're going to score political points on this, they would have to be aiming at the supply chain issues, and that is very convenient for them. They would like to be able to put the responsibility for supply chain issues and food shortages on 
someone who's not a Democrat. And so Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who Trump has endorsed, and by the way, I'm not a fan of Greg Abbott or that endorsement, but Trump has endorsed Abbott and Abbott seems like a suitable target for Democrat anger. If they are able to blame some of the supply chain issues and food shortages on Greg Abbott, that's a win for them. No one will believe it ultimately, but they're going to try the same thing they're doing right now with the Putin price hike. By the way, they've surveyed that and it's only 6% of people that blame the price hikes, the inflation on Vladimir Putin. So the narrative has completely failed for the fake administration, but it doesn't mean they won't always try it again. Now, there's no reason to actually think that the Democrats are being sincere when they bring up supply chain problems and food shortage problems. Not only have they been causing those problems for the last 15 months, creating those problems is literally part of the Great Reset agenda. And we can know that pretty easily by the fact that they have specifically implemented policies that will exacerbate those problems. And besides a little bit of lip service from Pete Buttigieg in between nursing children, they've done nothing to fix those problems. I think we have probably all seen empty shelves at grocery stores. And it's important to distinguish What we mean when we say empty shelves at grocery stores, we don't mean the entire grocery store has been cleaned out of food. It's just that many of the products we could normally buy simply aren't there. And it's not because the grocery store doesn't intend to sell them. The shelf space is still sitting there open to sell those products. The product just isn't there because of the supply chains because of the policies implemented by the fake administration. So then you have to understand that unless Greg Abbott's new policy is actually stopping the trafficking of illegal immigrants and drugs into the country, then it's either another optics ploy or it's a means of negotiating better border policies with the Mexican government. If that works, and we'll be able to see whether or not that works, if Greg Abbott is able to gain concessions from the Mexican government or from the Mexican states along the U.S.'s southern border, then his leverage play worked. So we have to wait and see what the results of those negotiations might be. This is harming both the Mexican economy and the American economy in the short term. And we'll see what happens in the long term. But if that negotiation doesn't work, if the Mexicans don't make any concessions and none of this slows down anything at the southern border, then we really have to begin to wonder what in the world Greg Abbott is actually intending to do at the border. Now, people have mentioned associations between Greg Abbott and the World Economic Forum, and you can find those if you look them up. But again, Trump endorsed Greg Abbott. Republicans in Texas, especially establishment Republicans, are very aligned with Greg Abbott on many, many things. But I think this is a good opportunity to learn something about who Greg Abbott actually is and whether or not he cares about these issues or just cares about the optics of these issues. Does he care about serving the good of the people of Texas and the people of the United States 
or does he care about the optics while implementing policies that are exactly in line with the global communist agenda's positions? If this play doesn't work, then it becomes pretty clear that he's doing something that helps them while trying to pretend that he's doing something that helps the citizens of Texas and the people of the United States. And I'm open to either, by the way, I really am. I'm not a Greg Abbott fan, but I could be. I assume that Donald Trump knows a nearly infinite number of things that I don't. He has the best access to intelligence in the world, and he has people around him that can advise him on all these issues. He also has conversations with Texas Governor Greg Abbott, and they know what the substance of those conversations is. Maybe Donald Trump is fully in line with the plans that Greg Abbott is implementing. I'm totally open to that in the future. But if nothing comes of these negotiations, you really got to start looking pretty skeptically at what Greg Abbott is doing right now. These moves are grabbing some headlines and giving us those little fun opportunities of making fun of how liberals are. But that stuff is good for like Fox News and Ben Shapiro's show. I'm not interested in liberal tears. I'm interested in getting rid of communism in the United States and thwarting the Great Reset agenda with the Great Awakening and getting there through truth and moral decision making. Being able to dunk on AOC is not that exciting to me. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it's worth updating the New York subway shooter story that was going to be all the rage yesterday until they found out that the quote unquote suspect is a black man who was, of course, previously known of by the FBI as in every single false flag situation. Do I know it's a false flag? No, I don't know. But I know it's not what the media tried to make it yesterday in the morning. And I know they kind of blew it. I'm sure they would have loved to find a way that the man responsible for the very violent shooting was a flag waving America first Trump supporter that they could label white supremacist. They would love that. Doesn't work so well when the suspect who has now been arrested is a black man and not just any black man, a black man who is a malignant racist. Check this out. And by the way, if you got kids, earmuffs. Yeah, fuck you too. You see that shit all day, every day. You know, you see that shit all day, every day. White motherfucker gonna slam the door. Like, you know, try to slam, slam it in my face. Yeah, fuck you and your white ass too, you white mother, racist motherfucker. They had to put that in for good luck. I don't get, listen. Yeah, white racist motherfuckers. Yeah, they do exist. They do fucking exist. Look at me, motherfucker. And they hate your guts too. Slant eye fucking piece of shit. All that shit you know in Vietnam, they, they, they not your fucking friend. They ain't your fucking friend, nigga. You're something less than human to them. You better get that in your fucking thick skull. Oh, I ain't not, I ain't not black. I this guy, see? Motherfucker, stinking bitch. 
So he's a perfectly normal guy who just hates white people and Asian people and probably a lot of black people, too. I guess he is a content creator on YouTube and other social media platforms, even though he's like 60 or something. I mean, listen, he does have a good voice like that guy should have pursued a career in rap. Maybe he could have featured on a couple tracks for Wu-Tang Clan. And by the way, that's not an insult to Wu-Tang Clan. Wu-Tang Clan are probably the greatest rappers of all time. In my very humble opinion, I'm also right. Humble opinion, but right. I mean, he even made videos supporting Ketanji Brown Jackson. Now, the Gateway Pundit included links to those videos on YouTube in their article about Frank James's really stunning character and his life as a black supremacist. But YouTube removed those videos. So now we can't see the suspect in the New York City subway shooter incident singing the praises of the woman. I mean, or not woman. I'm not a biologist who just was confirmed by a group of illegitimate senators and nominated by an illegitimate president to serve on the Supreme Court after a remarkable career of going very, very easy on pedophiles. It's crazy that the powers that be at Google and in the fake administration didn't want that video to stay up because prior to that, it seemed like they were down for anyone to support Katanji Brown Jackson, especially on the basis of race, no matter how racist the person supporting her actually is. I mean, Joy Reid goes out there saying racist things about white people every night. And so do a bunch of her guests, but she supports Katanji Brown Jackson. So she's good to go. I can't believe that they are censoring Frank James's speech. So rude. Frank James has 12 prior arrests, nine of them in New York City. And it took them well over 24 hours to find him and arrest him. And the fact that he was even free on the streets and free to keep just proclaiming his hatred on legacy social media sites kind of tells you a lot about where our culture's at right now and where our law enforcement is at right now. Defund the police. If you want to know who's responsible for this incident, it's all of those people. The FBI the communist politicians, all the child brains who support all this woke bullshit and the media who proves every night on television that racism is not only okay, but it's actually encouraged as long as it doesn't emanate from white people. Now, racism should Never be a thing for anyone to be consistently espousing on TV or otherwise. But it would be nice if all those communists could eventually admit that you don't have to be white to be racist, even as the only people who could ever believe something that dumb are college educated white people 
and the stupidest people on the internet who are completely addicted to the central narrative and constantly virtue signaling in an attempt to gain more status within their small communities. Now, the argument that only one race is capable of being racist is one of the dumbest arguments ever. I mean, it's obviously a racist argument. I think everyone understands that. But think about what they're saying. They're saying that only one race has the capacity for hatred based on race. But they also tell us that race is a construct. And that's why we shouldn't be grouping and stereotyping by skin color. Imagine what life would be like for all of these woke communists if they had to play by the same rules we have to play by. They get the advantage of a media completely on their side, the censorship regime completely on their side, and then they manipulate culture until they can say whatever they want and no one can ever agree with them. This is why they're so scared that free speech may come back on Twitter or that Twitter may merge with other companies, for instance, any possibilities, but free speech for them is the end. These ideas don't hold up under even the most minute scrutiny. And they don't make any more sense just because college professors and the college educated are the ones who espouse them. Now, there was a really interesting poll that was highlighted by Steve Kornacki on MSNBC the other day, and I think everybody probably saw the screenshot of this. But if you didn't, there was a graphic that showed the change in congressional preference broken down by men versus women and college educated versus not college educated. So men who had gone to college and maybe have a postgraduate degree, a doctorate, whatever, they were in 2018 Democrat plus 16. Now they are Republican plus 10. So for college educated men, they have shifted 26 points in favor of Republicans. Men without a college degree in 2018 were Republican plus eight, and now they're Republican plus 20. They shifted 12 points more toward Republicans. Women with no college degree were Dem plus three. Now they are Dem plus one. So they have shifted two points toward Republicans. The only group that didn't go in that direction are women with a college degree or better. They were Democrat plus 34 in 2018, and now they're Democrat plus 38. They went four more points toward the Democrats. It might be time for everybody to admit that the college degree is not what we were taught it was. It's not actually a symbol of education. It's a symbol of indoctrination. And I know there are millions and millions or billions of brilliant women out there. This has nothing to do with a woman's natural mental capacity. What it has to do with is the fact that they are being indoctrinated in college and coming out much, much dumber than the average population. To go into an institution and leave 
knowing less about the world after four years of quote unquote education indicates a total deference to authority. They go in, they hear new ideas from people they're told are authority figures on any given subject, and they immediately adopt those ideas and move forward. The fact that during the last few years, they have gotten more Democrat should be all you need to know about their sanity and their attention to any of these issues. It's basically just the mindset. Well, I'm rich and educated. The way to fix everything is for the government to give stuff to everyone else so that I don't have to worry about it. All I have to do is support the government in whatever it tells me, and then everyone else will be fine. And I think maybe it's worth noting the historical pattern where people who are most in favor of communism are ones that don't have the confidence to fend for themselves in a free and fair world or people that just have so much money that they want to live forever as kings and leave everyone else as serfs who all have equality among themselves. And that's just feudalism. Now, I want to quickly mention that the CDC has decided everyone who travels on public transportation is going to have to continue wearing masks for another two weeks. This is the Associated Press today. CDC extends travel mask requirement to May 3rd as COVID rises. The Biden administration announced Wednesday that it is extending the nationwide mask requirement for public transit for 15 days as it monitors an uptick in COVID-19 cases. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said it was extending the order, which was set to expire on April 18th until May 3rd to allow more time to study the BA2 Omicron subvariant that is now responsible for the vast majority of cases in the U.S. And they should always add at the end of these sentences, we are told. In order to assess the potential impact the rise of cases has on severe disease, including hospitalizations and deaths and healthcare system capacity, the CDC order will remain in place at this time, the agency said in a statement. When the Transportation Security Administration, which enforces the rule for planes, buses, trains and transit hubs, extended the requirement last month, it said the CDC had been hoping to roll out a more flexible masking strategy that would have replaced the nationwide requirement. The mask mandate is the most visible vestige of government restrictions to control the pandemic and possibly the most controversial. A surge of abusive and sometimes violent incidents on airplanes has been attributed mostly to disputes over mask wearing. Critics have seized on the fact that states have rolled back rules requiring masking in restaurants, stores and other indoor settings. And yet COVID-19 cases have fallen sharply since the Omicron variant peaked in mid-January. There has been a slight increase in cases in recent weeks driven by the BA2 strain with daily confirmed cases nationwide rising from about 25,000 per day to more than 30,000. Those figures are an undercount since many people now test positive on at-home tests that are not reported to public health agencies. Severe illnesses and deaths tend to lag infections by several weeks. The CDC is awaiting indications of whether the increase in cases 
correlates to a rise in adverse outcomes before announcing a less restrictive mask policy for travel. Now, here's the thing. Masks don't work. I will not wear one on the plane. I will not wear one on the train. I will not wear your silly mask. So don't you even fucking ask. And that beautiful rhyme, of course, was written by Dr. Seuss. But masks obviously don't work. If masks could work, why didn't they? How come there is no proof after nearly two years of mask policies that masks had any effect on the spread of COVID? They didn't. And we have even been told by the CDC that they didn't. We were told flat out that cloth masks don't do anything. The CDC admitted that. They spent a couple weeks trying to convince us that people needed to wear N95 masks. And they were even talking about distributing them as if you'd be protected if you own just one of them and not simply run through that mask in one day and then have to throw it out because that's how N95 masks are. But consider the number of false narratives that were in this one article trying to justify extending a mask policy. They're claiming that this extension is so that they can monitor the effectiveness of the masks on spread. They're worried about the potential impact the rise of cases has on severe disease, including hospitalizations and deaths and healthcare system capacity. Again, there hasn't been a single time throughout this period where health care system capacity has been pushed to the brink. Still to this day, no one has been triaged for COVID care. It doesn't matter how many times they give you numbers that say the hospital's capacity is pushing the limit. It has never gone over the limit, so none of this is necessary. The new variant, the sister of Omicron, the BA2 Omicron variant, isn't claimed by anyone to be more virulent than the original Omicron variant. And the original Omicron variant was basically a cold. Critics have seized on the fact that reducing the restrictions throughout society had no negative effect on the number of COVID cases or deaths or anything else. And it truthfully never has. We've heard wait two more weeks for over two years now. And they're trying to use the argument still that hospitalizations and deaths lag behind the case count rising, which obviously is true in some sense, but they never accepted that argument as true in the early stages of the pandemic, where you could see pretty clearly that rolling back restrictions and opening up society had no negative impact on results, no matter how long we waited for that lag to take. And if they wanted to imply that the case numbers are only so low because people are doing at-home tests now, why did they make such a big deal of sending everybody at-home tests? You could more easily argue that no one should be getting tested for COVID at all. There is no reason to get tested for something 
that is no more dangerous than a common cold or flu. And we know that the tests don't even really work anyway. They're not undercounting COVID in some threatening way. They're overcounting and still focused on cases, even though cases of COVID are absolutely meaningless. But consider this in the larger picture of what they're trying to do with COVID. They are trying to keep the COVID narrative alive. They've brought out a new, very scary variant. And in the last few weeks, they've had just one after another popular Democrat politician or Democrat communist figure come down with COVID and then tell everybody that they're thankful for their vaccine because without the vaccine and without being boosted, they could have had a much more severe case. But that part isn't true either. It's just lie on top of lie on top of lie. And the media, of course, is playing right along. They ask questions in White House press conferences about why wasn't Kamala Harris wearing a mask then? Why wasn't Joe Biden wearing a mask then? And Jen Psaki always says, well, we're following the CDC guidelines. And the other day she was like, you got to understand that, you know, Kamala Harris being able to witness Ketanji Brown Jackson being confirmed for a seat on the Supreme Court. Well, that was an emotional day. And on an emotional day, you can't be expected to wear a mask all the time, but we're still following CDC guidelines. And that brings me to another point. Why does the CDC get to tell the entire country what it must do? And why do they get to do that using the logic of obviously flawed the science to support their case. Masks don't work. They never worked. They never worked anywhere for anything. It is only about control. Now, I want to update the story in Michigan about the alleged ringleaders of the plot to kidnap and maybe kill Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And so I'm going again to American Greatness and Julie Kelly, who has reported this story as well as anyone aside from Darren Beatty at Revolver. This is from today. Justice Department plans to retry two remaining Whitmer fednapping defendants. Despite a humiliating defeat in what the Justice Department considered one of its biggest domestic terror investigations in recent history, federal prosecutors announced they will retry two men who were not acquitted last week on charges of conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. Chief District Court Judge Robert Jonker declared a mistrial on April 8th after a jury in Western Michigan could not agree on the guilt of Adam Fox, the so-called ringleader, and Barry Croft Jr. related to the alleged plot. Two other men, Daniel Harris and Brandon Caserta, were found not guilty on all charges and went home last Friday night after spending 18 months in jail. Defense attorneys argued the men were entrapped by the FBI, which the jury presumably believed in the case of Harris and Caserta. Numerous FBI experts and agents took the stand for the government, as did Dan Chappell, the lead informant and one of his FBI handlers. The three-week trial exposed a wide-ranging operation inside the FBI and Justice Department to target the men who did not know each other until the FBI got involved, infiltrate the group with informants and undercover agents, 
create encrypted group chats monitored by the FBI, plan and fund excursions, including a surveillance trip to Whitmer's summer cottage, secretly record every conversation, including when the targets were high on marijuana and drive several defendants to the arrest site in October 2020 under a phony pretense. Nonetheless, Andrew Burge, assistant U.S. attorney for Western Michigan, confirmed this week his office plans to again prosecute Fox and Croft. Burge's office told a Grand Rapids television station on Monday that charges will be refiled. But Burge's prosecutors will have an uphill battle for the next trial. To prove the conspiracy to kidnap offense, the government must now prove that Fox, Croft, and the two men who pleaded guilty created the plot. Fox and Croft lived nearly a thousand miles apart and had little interaction aside from meetings organized by FBI informants. The testimony of Caleb Franks and Ty Garbin, the defendants who pleaded guilty in exchange for sentencing leniency, backfired on the government and failed to convince the jury the kidnapping conspiracy was legitimate. Further, Jonker's pretrial rulings heavily favored the government. Hundreds of statements between FBI agents and informants were kept from the jury after Jonker ruled the conversations were hearsay. Jonker also denied a motion to compel testimony from another key informant, a convicted felon and longtime FBI source who said he would plead the fifth after Burge's office threatened him with additional charges. The jury also never heard that Richard Trask, the FBI agent who signed the initial criminal complaint against the defendants, was fired by the agency after he was arrested for assaulting his wife in a drunken rage following a swingers party last summer or alleged misconduct by the two agents managing chapel. BuzzFeed reporter Ken Benzinger noted the one sided trial in a post verdict column. Over and over during the course of the trial, the prosecution objected to any attempts by defendants to provide context for the often shocking sound bites and text messages shown in court. Objections sustained by a judge who agreed that such material risked confusing the jury. Bensinger, who has reported on the case in detail since last year, wrote on April 8th. The result was, at least from the defendant's point of view, a stunningly one-sided presentation that left the preponderance of evidence out of court and gave jurors precious little to balance against the Justice Department's claims. It's unclear whether prosecutors will have the same good fortune in the next round. Meanwhile, the stunning verdict has caught the attention of congressional Republicans now promising to investigate the investigators. Linking to reports at American Greatness, Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee promised the government perpetrators would be held accountable for the scheme. No word on when the Justice Department will refile charges against Fox and Croft. So it should be pretty clear by this point that the plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer was started by FBI agents and FBI informants. These are the people who actually carried this thing out. Twelve out of eight of the plotters and perpetrators were feds or directly linked to the feds. They turned this into a national news story meant to implicate Donald Trump and Trump supporters in the lead up to the 2020 election. The courts have gone along with this and even tried to aid the prosecution in order to preserve the narrative and the FBI's own field office director, Stephen D'Antuono, was promoted 
to do his same job in D.C. right before the very violent insurrection on January 6, 2021. This is just blatant corruption by our law enforcement community and the judicial system right out in the open for everyone to see. And we're going to continue to see more of it. And then we're going to see the same thing with the January 6th trials. So I ended the show yesterday talking about True the Vote and the interview they did with Charlie Kirk, which I hope people have taken the time to listen to. But if not, I want to go through some of this on the show because I know some people to some extent treat this show as a source of news. And so I don't want to just gloss over it because this stuff is hugely important. So I want to go to the always excellent Liberty Overwatch channel for their rundown. True the Votes, Catherine Engelbrecht and Greg Phillips sat down with Charlie Kirk for an illuminating hour-long interview detailing their ultra-high-tech investigation into an organized crime ballot trafficking operation that swung the 2020 election for Joe Biden. The Dropbox stuffing activity followed a consistent pattern, Phillips explained. Every operation involved a set of collectors, a collection point or stash house for all the ballots, the bundling of those ballots, and then the casting of those ballots by what we are calling mules in the drop boxes. And as we began to put the pieces and parts together, it really did dawn on us. Well, this sounds like what's happening in Atlanta or San Luis, Arizona. This was a conspiracy. This was organized crime. Engelbrecht describes the fateful moment when she turned to Phillips and asked, how do we take down a cartel? That's when we began using the terms like stash houses and drop points and mules and trafficking and voter abuse, because that's what we're looking at. Focusing on six states, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Texas, True the Vote spent $2 million to buy publicly available cell phone data that can pinpoint an individual's location to within a few inches. They then narrowed their search to targets who began visiting drop boxes and NGO offices during the early voting weeks leading up to November 3rd, activity that was contrary to their prior pattern of life. In Georgia, the threshold was at least two dozen trips to drop boxes and five visits to a nonprofit. Now, I want to pause right there. So what they're doing is looking for a change in pattern of life based on cell phone location data. So you might have your normal routine. You get up, you go to a coffee shop, you go to the gym, you go to the office, you have lunch at this place or that place, you're back at the office, you go to dinner, you go to a movie, you go home. That could be your normal pattern of life, for instance. Then that changes. And all of a sudden, you are regularly visiting the Dropbox location and one or another or many of the locations of offices run by NGOs. And these NGOs call themselves nonprofits. They're classified as 501c3s. That means they are not supposed to be involved in partisan political activity. They call themselves nonpartisan. And so when they get donations, those donations are supposed to be okay. And the NGOs are supposed to be doing something okay based on the fact that they are nonpartisan. But as we know from the Zuckerberg operation run by Obama's former campaign manager, David Plouffe, 
This operation is anything but nonpartisan. They are fully partisan. It is a get out the vote effort for Joe Biden. And I use the get out the vote term very loosely because what they were really doing was increasing the vote total for Joe Biden through illegal means, not just getting Joe Biden's voters to make sure to cast their ballots. Engelbrecht described their filtering logic. They wanted parameters that were outside the norm, so aberrant that it would just stick out like a sore thumb in terms of a data set. She says we wanted to have such clear margins, such clear lines that we finally settled on groups that were going to the drop boxes in Georgia on average 23 times. So it's distinctive. Phillips points out they also had to go to the NGOs, so they had to meet both those criteria a certain number of times for them to drill down and study the behavior linked to those particular cell phone devices. Through open records requests, True the Vote acquired Dropbox surveillance video when available, which helped them confirm the trafficking activity. They also evaluated chain of custody documents to identify what a typical day looked like at a given Dropbox. Those records showed normal ballot drop data punctuated by spikes in ballot receipts. This information helped them hone in on specific dates and times buried in their four million minutes of footage. So basically, through their cell phone location data that also has the time aspect in that data, latitude, longitude, time and elevation. I talked about this yesterday. They could know whether someone was on the first floor or the 10th floor or the 17th floor based on this cell phone ping data. So they knew the time and they knew when that device was next to the Dropbox. So then they were able to go and immediately target that point in the video to see if the person that corresponds to the device was in fact stuffing ballots in Dropboxes. And it turned out they were. This is how money laundering works, Charlie Kirk observed. This is not just a one-off thing. This is not some Democrat activist that really wanted Trump gone and might have a couple friends to do this. This was a machine. And by machine, he means operation, not, you know, one of the terrible voting machines. Which state was the worst offender, he asked. Phillips answered that it was Pennsylvania, the worst in every way. 1,155 people met our criteria in Philadelphia. So that is 1,155 different people involved in a ballot trafficking operation in Philadelphia. So if each one of those ballot traffickers was responsible for just 10 ballots, that's 11,550 ballots. And Joe Biden was said to have won Pennsylvania by 81,000. That's a huge number. And that is not the total number, by the way. What's even more insane, Engelbrecht said, is watching the data, watching the pings come across the bridge in New Jersey and into Philly. The traffickers actually crossed state lines to participate in the fraud. And it wasn't just in Philadelphia. Two mules in Arizona made their way to Georgia for the runoffs. And a bartender in South Carolina came in to help out in Atlanta. So that is pretty clearly a nationwide organized effort to defraud the election. You cannot get past that. The data is real. They have everything. It's all there. This was a nationwide operation, 
a system in place to steal the election. Even more disturbing, the National Republican Senatorial Committee knew about the systematic ballot stuffing and did nothing. We learned that there were off-duty law enforcement officers paid for by the Republican Party that reported all of this, and the NRSC just covered it up, Phillips said. The ballot trafficking fraud begins with dirty voter rolls, Engelbrecht explained. The cartel is feeding off inflated voter lists packed with invalid registrations. And again, we have seen this for the entire time. These states leave their voter rolls wide open. They don't clean them out even when they are ordered to by courts. And then you have the Eric system that we've talked about many times. They want to keep the voter rolls as inflated as possible. The reason for that is so that they can monitor early voting and compile a list of the people that have not yet voted who they do not expect to vote and then use that list to fill out fraudulent ballots. For example, in Georgia, the illegal Stacey Abrams Mark Elias consent decree pushed Raffensperger to send ballots to both active and inactive voters. The rolls hadn't been cleaned in two years. We know that ineligible voter records contributed to 75,000 of the votes in the general election in Georgia and 45,000 votes in the runoff. Engelbrecht said, the way that ballots were collected becomes this multi-tentacled hydra. It's all manner of ways that those ballots came in, but the important takeaway is that dirty voter rolls allow for a big portion of this grift, she underscored. Charlie Kirk asked who's running this. Our current hypothesis, Phillips said, is that there are new money folks like the Stacey Abrams of the world who all of a sudden show up in Maricopa County after the election arm in arm with the SEIU and others, where they thank her for delivering the state. The second piece of this is there are old money ties to some of the foundations that started in Chicago some 80 years ago in the 1960s. And how interesting is that? We know that there was election fraud in JFK's election. And then we spent decades pretending that voter fraud and election fraud aren't really a thing. And we still pretend that now. And Kirk asked, so you're saying that there's a foundation, a 501c3, that was potentially funding some of this activity. And they answered, yes, there were many of those groups. And as for a typical mule profile, every county is different, Phillips replied. We had some incidents at this place in Atlanta called The Bluff, one of the heaviest heroin trafficking places in the U.S., very dangerous, one of the top five most dangerous places in the U.S. We interviewed some people down there. That same night, we also went to 201 Washington Street, which is an advocacy center attached to a church in downtown Atlanta. But in Arizona, the profile looked a little different, Engelbrecht noted. It's been happening in Arizona for an awfully long time. What we see is there are people who really control communities and you have people at the top of the pyramid coming in and doing everything from building underprivileged housing to controlling the full vertical of the contractors and the banks and the financing organizations. And all of those people are participating in rounding up ballots. So there are people that are controlling these communities and 
Remember how we used to hear people like Chris Matthews on Hardball talking about the ward bosses in Philadelphia? Like they always used to hint and joke about the fact that there really are these corrupt people in these big Democrat cities who are just doing election fraud out in the open that everybody knows about. And it's just like it's part of the game. Like it's no big deal. Everybody does it. How many things in our political life are we told we just have to get over? Because that's just how the system is. If you're of a certain age, like baby boomers, for instance, they think that about everything. And then they get to ignore essentially every political issue. And yes, I know, not all baby boomers. Okay. But we have had political apathy passed down for generations. We're told that it's uncouth or impolite to talk about politics. People will say they don't spend their time on that. There are more important things in the world. Oh, yeah? There's more important things in the world than election fraud? Name one. Go ahead. Name one. And that little segment also gives you some insight into what Democrat communists are doing in these blue states and in blue cities in red states when it comes to, for instance, solving homeless problems. It is always about building more low income housing. Because once they build that low income housing, all they have to do is say somebody lives there and then that's an address where a voter can vote from. And if you want to convince everybody that there's a real voter living there, well, all you have to do is put them on welfare or another government program, put them on unemployment, tell us all that they're cashing their unemployment checks. And then thinking about that, you start considering, well, hey, wasn't there all sorts of unemployment fraud in the COVID lockdown period in 2020? Weren't there all sorts of unemployment checks and unemployment debit cards being sent all over the place that were being rounded up and collected by individuals who were then going on shopping sprees? We used to see pictures in L.A. of people going shopping on Rodeo Drive using multiple unemployment debit cards. And it's a very similar fraud that's been pulled on Social Security payments as well. So all you would need to do to do all this is know where all of these payments that will not otherwise be picked up are sent to. And once they're sent there, you just need to hire a bunch of people to go collect them. They will take those as their payment. If they get caught spending that money, well, it's them committing the crime. And then they can go back to those places to pick up other things like, let's say, ballots. And who are the people doing this? Well, the safest people to do it would be Democrat activists like, you know, Black Lives Matter Antifa and ex-convicts who don't mind committing crimes on behalf of political parties. And of course, we saw ex-convicts get released from prison throughout 2020 because of covid It was going to be so dangerous in prison that we had to release convicted felons so that they would not die of medical malpractice, which is what most COVID deaths are. They would get out of prison. They would join Black Lives Matter Antifa riots. Many of them were found responsible for some of the violence. 
They would go collect unemployment cards so that they could get paid off the books. I mean, you can't have NGOs just paying ex-felons, can you? And then we also have cases where they were found with ballots in their trunks, for instance. And of course, you're not allowed to mention this because if you talk about ex-convicts and Black Lives Matter Antifa, then you're racist. Now, I proposed all of this in 2020 just because it seemed kind of obvious that there was a system here and that the same people were being utilized for all of these different political goals. And who better to exploit in these systems than people who think that it's actually their moral duty to cheat the system and get rid of Donald Trump. Back to the Liberty Overwatch posts. As the 2000 Mules movie will soon show, we have informants who have come forward to describe exactly what happens, Engelbrecht said. And these collectors and these mules are making between $10 and $40 a ballot here in Arizona, according to the testimony we have, Phillips added. In Yuma County, Arizona, the cartel's days may be numbered. And I think they're talking about the ballot harvesting cartel here and not the Mexican drug cartel that is responsible for the human trafficking and drug trafficking across Arizona's southern border and who will eventually be doing those same things at the Skybridge development at the Phoenix airport. So the cartel's days may be numbered in Yuma. There were two ballot harvesting arrests in Yuma. I'm hearing from the grapevine that there might be more happening there, Charlie Kirk said. We think so too, Phillips said. We believe there will be more arrests in Yuma. One of the interesting things about Yuma County and San Luis in particular is some of that old money that we talked about earlier flows into some of these poor border communities. There, it's less about electing a president with these harvesting techniques and more about electing themselves so they can stay in control over all the billions that are flowing in, Phillips explained. So the local politicians in those border communities will go along and do all of this stuff so they can keep themselves in office because they are personally benefiting from the drug and human trafficking that happens across the southern border in Arizona. We think that here in Arizona, your AG and others are tuned in enough to what's going on down there that you're going to see some action, he said. And I guess we'll see how that goes, but they seem to have good information and are likely tied in with people in the know. So there's reason to be optimistic. What can we do to defeat the ballot laundering cartel? The solution has four pillars, according to Phillips. We must clean the voter rolls. We must stop mass mail-in voting and abolish the drop boxes. We must eliminate private funding of elections, and we must impose punishments that fit the crimes. Put some people in jail, Phillips said. If you put somebody in jail for 10 years for this, you'll stop it. We may soon start to see Zuckerberg audits that lead to arrests, according to Phillips. You're going to start seeing more and more of what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi. There's a state auditor in Jackson. His name is Chad White. And he went out and audited some of these officials who were doling out this Zuckerberg money. And there's been four arrests already in Jackson for stealing the money. I think you're going to see state auditors and others all over the country now start to say, where did all of this money go? 
Zuckerberg money was a huge catalyst. You take dirty voter rolls, you mail everyone an application, whether they ask for it or not, whether they're even legitimately on the rolls or not. And then you provide a means to stuff them in there, in the boxes, he means. But don't feel helpless, Engelbrecht encouraged. We are not victims because victims don't have a choice. We have a choice. This is happening on our watch. So we can choose to remain complicit and watch this and watch the 2000 Mules movie and go pop a bag of popcorn and sit back and say, wow, this is just horrible. And the band plays on. Or we can say not on our watch and get involved. We are an exceptional nation that can pull this together and pull it together quickly. We just have to make it a priority. We've taken voting for granted. We've taken the process for granted. And that has come to an end. Now is the time to wake up and demand standards locally, and then it will all roll uphill. Engelbrecht and Phillips plan to release their entire two petabyte data arsenal after the 2000 Mules premiere, which is now scheduled for the first week of May. They've also recently located video footage from the 14 cameras inside the Gwinnett County, Georgia counting facilities. Our intention after the video runs, we're going to pull the ripcord. We're going to release all of this. And for more, you can go to the Liberty Overwatch channel on Telegram. Or again, I really encourage everybody to listen to the entire interview. But Engelbrecht said something that I completely agree with. She's exactly right. If elections are not truly fair, we are not truly free. The vote is the people's voice. If the voice of the people is taken away or it is manipulated in some sense, it changes what country we live in. We have to understand that. And as I was saying yesterday, it also completely distorts our perception of what the people around us actually think. Imagine how people will perceive the 2020 election, knowing that Donald Trump won 75 million plus votes and Joe Biden only received 50 million or 60 million tops. That entirely changes the conversation. Joe Biden is not only an illegitimate president, which people are really coming to understand. He also did not win the popular vote at all and not by a long shot. Donald Trump won the 2020 election in a landslide. One thing that I'm surprised is missing from the Liberty Overwatch summary of that interview is that Phillips and Engelbrecht said they tracked approximately 4.8 million trafficked and laundered ballots that were counted in the 2020 election. And that's just in those six states. Imagine what happened in California. I would be shocked if there weren't another 5 million fraudulent votes in California, 5 million fraudulent votes. That is what completely changes California, not only in the perception of the country and how we think of it as this ultra left wing state, but it also changes everything about California's government. And you do that over time. And what you get is a beautiful state with a ton of creative talent, a ton of resources, some of the nicest terrain in the entire world, and it is nearly as communist as North Korea. 4.8 million trafficked and laundered ballots in those six states. By itself, that almost eliminates 
Joe Biden's fraudulent popular vote win. And who knows how many ballots were left uncounted for Donald Trump? Now, naturally, the other side of this is considering machine fraud and anything else. It could be that Donald Trump's 75 million is also an overstatement and overcounting. But that's really doubtful because they wouldn't have needed all the extra time they took to count ballots and they wouldn't have had to inflate Joe Biden's total to such a ridiculous number if Donald Trump didn't really have that many voters. And so just to wrap this up, you know, they gave their presentation, Phillips and Engelbrecht gave their presentation to the Wisconsin Assembly's Committee on Campaigns and Elections a week or so ago. Actually, I think it was March 24th. So what is that? Two and a half, three weeks ago. And the attorney that presented with them said that none of this is about overturning the 2020 election. Now, I don't appreciate that position at all. The election should be decertified. There is a way the Constitution would never bar something so basic to the continuation of our society as limiting the ability of the country to overturn a totally fraudulent election. But there are people out there who don't want to focus on that. I'm not saying, by the way, that the true the vote people are those kinds of people. In fact, they seem nothing but well-intentioned and heroic. But this is only one part of the scheme. It is a very large piece of the puzzle, no doubt. And this has a lot of implication on elections past because these systems have been in place for a while. But we can't just ignore the role that the machines play in all of this. For instance, we could solve all of these ballot trafficking problems and their push to go fully digital on elections can easily override whatever all of this can potentially fix. I mean, think about what the machines are doing at this point with an all digital election. You choose your candidates on the screen. It prints out a quote unquote ballot with a QR code that you are told holds your vote and your voter information. And that's it. There's no way to audit that. There's no way to find out if someone actually casted that vote unless you're going to go back and look at individual videos of every single voter cast and try to match them to the QR codes. So again, all of this is heroic, but this may only be solving a past problem as an entirely new problem takes shape and gains even a tighter grip on our elections. That is why fixing 2021st is so important. We cannot vote our way out of this problem. There are thousands of people committed to rigging our elections. They do it on an ultra professional level and they do it by manipulating the laws as much as anything else. You can't just fix the ballot harvesting and ballot laundering and ballot trafficking operation and think that the whole thing is cured. It's not even close to cured. But again, I just want to reiterate very heroic work by true the vote. I love their suggestions, but I'm saying their suggestions do not go far enough and we may still have entirely fraudulent elections, even if all those steps are implemented. Now, before I go, speaking of machines, boom segue, 
Let's talk about the American hero, Mike Lindell, and his great American company, MyPillow. Get yourself some comfortable stuff, a mattress pad, some Giza dream sheets, some slippers or moccasins, some towels, and of course, some great pillows. You can do all of that at MyPillow.com. And if you use the promo code reasonable, you will save up to 60% across an entire range of items on MyPillow.com. And you will also get a free gift, which I believe right now is a soft cover book, Mike Lindell's autobiography. So thank you to the good people at MyPillow.com. If you want to support this show, if you want to support the American hero, Mike Lindell, or the great American company, MyPillow, go to MyPillow.com, use promo code reasonable. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!